0: in our last episode. A series of squabbles between Berger's gang and his enemies grew increasingly violent as Berger's notoriety spread. These included the shooting of the mayor of Culp, the bombings of Holmes, two attacks on Shady Rest by the Sheltons, and a bank robbery in Pocahontas, Illinois. <laughs> A night of another sort. Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary DeNeal. Chapter 20, The Death of Joe Adams. Joe Adams had been up most of the night, guarding his home and badly needed sleep that Sunday afternoon of December 12th. But he was awakened by his wife, Beulah, who said that two young men were at the door with a message from Carl Shelton. When Joe Adams got to the door, he did not recognize either of the two fellows, one of whom wore a sheepskin coat. He was handed a note, and as he read it, the man in the sheepskin coat let the barrel of his revolver slide down his sleeve until the handle of the gun was in his hand. He fired. At the same time, his companion also began firing. My god, they shot me. Cried Adams as he fell. His assailants ran to the Chrysler parked a short distance west of the house, jumped in, and sped toward the west, according to eyewitnesses. A half hour later, Joe Adams was dead. Arlie O. Boswell and Maurice Potter were having their supper at the BBT room in Marion when Charlie Berger arrived. When the gangster asked Boswell who had been killed at West City, the state's attorney replied that he wasn't aware of any killing, but that he would phone Franklin County Sheriff James Pritchard and find out. Together, the two men went upstairs to Boswell's office to make the call. From the other end of the line, Jim Pritchard said that Joe Adams had been shot to death. Pritchard and Franklin County State's Attorney Roy Martin thought they knew who had Adams killed, as did Gus Adams and Joe's widow, Beulah. At the coroner's inquest the following night, Mrs. Adams appeared to have no doubt about the matter. Many times, Berger had called to threaten her husband, she said. Once, hearing the all-too-familiar voice on the telephone, she had asked,
1: -"Won't we do?"
0: referring to herself and the two children. Taken aback, the caller protested that women and children had nothing to fear from the guns of the Burger Gang. Ever thoughtful of the welfare of others, Charlie even suggested that she take out some insurance on her husband's life. Alonzo Norris and his family lived across the street from Burger. The day after Adams was murdered, Mrs. Norris concluded some meanness had occurred the night before because the cars parked at Berger's house seemed unusually muddy and guns were stacked on the lawn. Later that day, she learned of the Adams' killing. A reporter from the International News Service placed a call to Berger's home with the inevitable question.
1: Who killed Joe Adams?
0: With just a touch of indignation, the gangster replied, I don't know who killed Adams. But I'm certainly glad Adams was killed.
1: Everyone comes to me and asks who did this and that. What am I, a detective for Southern Illinois? What the hell does anybody care who killed Adams?"
0: The state's attorney and sheriff of Franklin County very much cared, but they had no evidence. In the minutes before his death, Adams had told his wife that he could not recognize his assailants. Their daughter, Arian, who had chased the men toward their automobile, indicated to reporters that Berger himself might have been one of the men. More credence was placed in a statement by Gus Adams, and upon his testimony that he might know who wrote the note that Joe Adams was reading when he was shot, the inquest was postponed until the following night. At that time, it became clear that Gus's one-man investigation had ended where it began, in speculation. Still, the note remained close at hand, intriguing as ever. Having little else to go on, Roy Martin studied the scrap of paper. There was little in the wording to offer much hope.
1: East St. Louis, Illinois, January. Friend Joe, if you can use these boys, please do it. They are broke and need work. I know their father. C.S.
0: Only the day before the Adams murder, Carl Shelton was freed on a $60,000 bond at Peoria, where he had been held as a suspect in the robbery of a mail messenger in Collinsville in 1925. Four days later, he was arrested in St. Louis. After several hours of intense questioning by the St. Louis police, and particularly by Police Chief Girk, the Southern Illinois gang leader reportedly cried into his handkerchief. Art Newman was later to capitalize on the incident by referring to Carl as a crybaby. Actually, he had a lot to cry about. His interrogation by the police, in fact, had resulted from his placing himself in their custody after receiving a call from the East St. Louis police saying that Berger and one of his men were driving up to St. Louis to kill him. Seeking refuge, the affable bootlegger had found only harassment and salt for fresh wounds. He was fingerprinted, then ordered out of town. The following day brought Shelton even more troubles. He was arrested by the government and charged with having driven a stolen car into Madison County. His bond was set at $5,000. As a final insult, the local authorities again arrested him for questioning about the counterfeit $20 bills circulating in East St. Louis. All this bother and embarrassment came when he could have avoided it all by going to Franklin County, where his name still commanded respect. Certainly, he should have attended Joe Adams's wake. Humiliating as it was, his time in St. Louis was not completely misspent, however. According to Art Newman's account, published a short time later, Berger had dispatched two of his lesser-known gang members to the mayor's wake in the unlikely event that Carl did appear. Peace was denied the sinner, but the righteous fared no better. While Carl Shelton was recovering from his first round of questioning under Police Chief Gurk's fiery eye, a minister of the gospel was in the process of having his car stolen in Marion. Wednesday night prayer meeting at the Warder Street Baptist Church found Reverend J.W. McKinney interspersing his rendition of the gospel with a heated denunciation of the local authorities, and in particular, Arlie O. Boswell. In all likelihood, the congregation liked their minister's style, for they had just bought him a brand new four-door red Chevrolet coupe. That night during the services, a thief turned the keys in the car in a promising direction and drove away in the vehicle. The next morning, as was his custom, Boswell stopped by his favorite barbershop for a shave. He was not particularly surprised to hear from one of the patrons that his funeral had been preached the night before by Reverend McKinney. Fresh from his barber's daily services, the state's attorney stopped next at the sheriff's office, as he usually did each morning. To learn who had been killed that night and all about it, so I knew what I had to do. On this particular morning, a man with his back to the door was, in Boswell's words, raising hell. Good morning, Reverend McKinney. You seem to be excited about something, said Boswell, and the following conversation ensued. Excited? Why shouldn't I be? A poor man like me have my new automobile stolen, and the officer's doing nothing about it. Brand new car, huh?
1: Will you cooperate with me on this?
0: I'll do anything to get my car back.
1: Anything? Okay, you'll be here at nine o'clock.
0: At nine or shortly thereafter, the two men were motoring east. Where are we going? The minister asked as they drove through Crab Orchard. Oh, we might end up in Harrisburg or some other seaport, came the reply. Actually, their destination was near at hand. Oh my god, oh my god, exclaimed McKinney as they pulled in at the barbecue stand. This is burgers. I can't be seen here, sputtered McKinney. Well, if you can't, how do you think I can, was the attorney's reply. He failed to mention, of course, that he, Judge Hartwell, and Charlie Berger had met a short time earlier with Illinois Supreme Court Justice W.W. Duncan in Duncan's office in Marion. As gruff as he was shrewd, Duncan had informed Berger that he wanted an end to the murders and car thefts and other crimes that were plaguing Williamson County. In answer to his charges, Berger very coolly said that while he knew nothing of the crimes referred to, he would do everything in his power to help solve them. All they had to do was ask. Although no one in the room believed a word he said, the fact that he was so pleasant and reasonable was encouraging. Moreover, Boswell felt that if this super salesman of a gangster could help solve this particular crime without implicating himself, he would do so, if only for the favorable publicity. The state's attorney also believed they would find the stolen coop at Shady Rest. As they got out of the car, a man stepped from the barbecue stand. Boswell asked him if Burger was around. Smart Alec," replied Ray Highland, better known as Izzy the Jew. You know better than to come out here and ask about Mr. Burger. No, get going. By way of answer, Boswell sent a well-directed right to Izzy's jaw and sent the East St. Louis gangster sprawling. Dazed though he was, Highland was still alert enough to reach for his pistol, but when he did so, Boswell stomped hard on his gun arm, breaking it, he later was told. Still game, Hyland started to reach for his other gun with his left hand, only to hear the man standing over him promise to rearrange his countenance if he did so. Hyland acquiesced, and both of his guns were placed in Reverend McKinney's hands for safekeeping. When Hyland got up, Boswell said, I'm sorry
1: I didn't introduce myself. I'm Arlie O. Boswell, the state's attorney. You tell Berger for me that I want that car by three o'clock this afternoon. It must not be stripped, nor do I want to be informed that it was burned up. I want it in toto. In their quick
0: tour of the premises, the visitors saw but did not enter the pit where the cocks and dogs fought. I wasn't that big a damn fool, said Boswell. As they drove back to Marion, Reverend McKinney seemed lost in thought. You scared me to death, he said at last, adding, That man could have killed you. Oh no, Boswell beamed. You don't know me like some people. I've always said, give me the first lick and I'm not afraid of any son of a bitch that ever lived. That afternoon at 2.30 p.m., a call came from Sheriff Holcomb up at Mount Vernon. A car had been located at Ina, Illinois, the sheriff said. A red Chevrolet that had been registered in the name of a Reverend J.W. McKinney of Marion. Grateful for the good news, Boswell telephoned Berger in Harrisburg to thank him for his cooperation. Berger wasn't having any of it. What car? Sure enough, the next morning an anonymous call came through. One of the hangers-on out at Shady Rest was pegged as the fellow who had turned the key that triggered the whole mess. He was picked up and brought in. In talking with the suspect, Boswell discerned that behind the young man's stutter was the kind of brilliance rarely found among petty thieves and gunmen. Said Boswell, I would go into that
1: jail and talk to this guy, and would I get anything? No. Just the impression that he came from a very wonderful family. I used every device that I had ever read about or dreamed
0: about or anything else to find out who the hell he really was. Nothing. Williamson County had humored car thieves long enough, for this culprit in all likelihood would be the salting away behind the clanging cell door, and for local owners of automobiles, sound or sleep at night. But being a seasoned poker player, the state's attorney decided to bluff a little.
1: Incidentally, have you heard from your mother or sister lately? He yawned.
0: What? What? Uh, you, You know who I am?
1: I know who you are. Why would you want to do that to your mother and sister? Aside to me 50 years later, Boswell declared, Hell, I didn't know if he had a mother or a sister. Your mother is coming
0: out. Do you want your sister to come too? That did it. A son of one of California's leading architects, the young man had left Stanford University because his speech defect had made him a laughingstock on campus, or so he thought. This impediment, he felt, was also embarrassing his sister who had only recently been elected University Queen. Convinced by newspaper accounts that the Burger Gang of Southern Illinois was the ideal refuge for such social misfits as thieves, murderers, and stutterers, the young man had journeyed east to notorious shady rest. There he had set about proving himself by stealing a car. To his great dismay, however, he soon discovered that the other social misfits were as quick to jeer at his defect as were his former classmates, perhaps quicker. They certainly did so with less wit. Of course, he wasn't a gangster any more than me or you. I dismiss the case, said Boswell, plainly satisfied with his decision. For years, he received a Christmas card from the former car thief, now an architect on the West Coast. Someone had given Sheriff Coleman a tip that several gunmen had been seen in a house and bootlegging joint in Heron that was operated by Jackie Williams, who was also known as Ali Pedro. The morning of December 27th saw the sheriff and his deputies setting out to confirm this rumor, and in the process, they managed to capture
1: four gunmen, four pistols, and two stolen cars.
0: That day, the Marion Daly Republican identified the four being held in the local jail as
1: Ray Highland of Chicago, James Madison of Missouri, and George Brown and Clarence Williams of Kentucky.
0: Ray Roan was picked up later. Brief though the account was, it contained many inaccuracies. Ray Highland was from East St. Louis, and Orrin Coleman had merely mistaken Alton B. Parker, Danny Brown, for his brother, and Williams hailed from the coal mining region of Williamson and Franklin counties. Lack of evidence against Williams caused the charges against him to be dropped. For weeks, however, Jimmy Madison remained in the Marion Jail, his true identity unknown. That afternoon, a coroner's inquest was in session at Benton for the fourth time in connection with the Joe Adams murder. This time, the jury found that Adams had died as a result of gunshot
1: wounds inflicted at the hands of persons to the jurors unknown, and we recommend that Charles Berger be held as an accessory before the facts of such killing.
0: A warrant was issued, and Sheriff Pritchard set about serving it. The scene thereupon shifted to Marion, With Coleman's morning raid fresh on his mind, Arlie O. Boswell did a bit of boasting just before leaving that night to attend the Illinois Association of States Attorneys annual convention in Chicago. I can safely say that there has been more actual work done in the way of conducting
1: liquor raids and apprehending criminals during the last two weeks by the sheriff's office than was done
0: previously in the last two years. Still in the future was the most ambitious raid of all, a joint effort by Sheriffs Coleman and Pritchard, and it would occur the following night while Boswell was hearing himself praised in Chicago by the director of the Illinois Crime Survey, Arthur J. Lashley. In retrospect, Boswell felt he was not told of the raid because the two officers did not trust him. They believed his ties with the Burger gang were far too strong. Warrant in hand, Jim Pritchard, along with some deputies, drove to Marion on the afternoon of December 29th. At the office of Supreme Court Justice W.W. W. Duncan, he met with Orrin Coleman. A plan was devised for the arrest of Charlie Berger. As daylight turned to dark, One carload of Williamson County deputies, among them Special Deputy Homer Butler, then the city editor of the Marion Daily Republican, drove to a snow embankment just east of the barbecue stand. The rest of the six-car caravan drove to Harrisburg with the warrant. If all went according to plan, Berger would be arrested at his home, presumably by Saline County Sheriff Lige Turner, who had previously been notified of the approaching delegation. Turner and his deputies would help escort the prisoner to the Saline-Williamson County line, there turning him over to Coleman and Pritchard. The final few miles would end, according to this scenario, with Jim Pritchard turning the key on the door of Berger's cell at the Benton Jail. As it turned out, the four men parked near Shady Rest waiting for the arresting officers and their prisoner to appear had no word from the others, and they became tired of waiting in the cold. The regular deputies wore bulletproof vests, but Butler, the newspaper man, had only a rifle and a cartridge belt. Finally, one of the deputies walked to a farmhouse to place a call to Sheriff Turner. Much to his dismay, he learned that the plan had been a total failure, and worse, that Coleman, who had accompanied Pritchard to Harrisburg, was probably back in Marion by that time. Although a sterling officer in many ways, Coleman was about as personable as a wounded rattlesnake, when he put his mind to it, so said his enemies, and probably some of his own men under their frozen breath. Trudging back to the car and its shivering occupants, the deputy made no effort to hide his disgust. After all, they had been there two hours. Stationed as they were between the very real cold and a possible confrontation with gangsters, the four men had every right to condemn their sheriff's lack of common courtesy. Blame for the failure of the plan itself was, in days following, largely credited to Lige Turner, who was friendly with if not a friend of Berger. Commenting later to a reporter, the gang leader said he had learned of the warrant early Tuesday, or several hours before the expedition began. Having been forewarned of unwelcome visitors, it had been an easy matter for him to be rabbit hunting that night. In the days to come, it became clear to anyone who might read a newspaper or occupy space on a street corner that Berger's arrest was not imminent. Nor did Turner improve matters by announcing,
1: I ain't putting out nothing.
0: Zeroing in on what it considered an astonishing utterance, the Marion Daily Republican included the sheriff's offhand remark in a list of famous war cries. This list included such time-tested gems as On to Richmond and Turn the Rascals Out. Less inclined to sarcasm, Jim Pritchard merely wished aloud that the proper authorities would act. Pritchard's anger, shared by Coleman and others, was not dampened by Berger's insistence that he was too busy just now to submit to arrest. After all, we must remember that the new year was close at hand, and the word was out that Berger had a $500 wager with a friend that Carl Shelton would not see in 1927. Known for his generous nature, Berger is said to have promised the money to anyone who could help him win the bet. Next time, four bodies were found. As with the body found south of Marion in the abandoned farmhouse a few months earlier, identification was difficult, although it was assumed almost from the first that Steve George and his wife were among the victims.